Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone who doesn't like to write thank you notes. It is time for your 44th Weird Dose of X, a member of your Weird Science family of podcasts. Not a network, a family. I am Jason, and speaking to me backwards from across time and space is our pal Ruben. Ruben, how the heck are you today? I come bearing great knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) You will give us all these secrets and uh, regrets from far into the future so that we could win our competition with our clones. Yes. Which is what everyone wants from a podcast. Get off of uh, any Ben Percy book right now because they don't get better. Oh, no. Any any hot stock tips for us? <laughs> the next Apple? No? No. Oh, Invest wow. in ChatGPT as soon as you have the ability to do so. Is, is this ChatGPT talking to me right now? I think it is. <laughs> anyway, uh, ChatGPT, Ruben, and I have three books to talk about today. Uh, the first would be Bishop War College number three. We'll get through that one pretty quickly, I think. X-Force number 39, which we're told is the start of a, quote, whole new era of X-Force. And the big one, Nightcrawlers number three, the penultimate entry in the Sins of Sinister. No news for me this week, and as far as I know, no soccer update. No soccer update? Okay. So, oh, no, actually, I do. Oh, we do update. have a soccer update. Okay. Yes, yes. So the Sanders won. And the Timbers lost, and all is good with the universe again. Congratulations slash regrets, because I don't know who those teams are, but I hope they all had a Seattle good time. Seattle and Portland. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, with that all out of the way, it's time to get right on into the books. Bishop War College number 3, written by Jay Holtham, art by Sean Damien Hill and Victor Nava, and over in Bishop's World, and by Alberto Foch on Krakoa of the 616. Colors all over by Espen Grundetjern. Letters by Travis Lanham, designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. So here's where we left off. Bitten had got... Bitten. Try that again. So here's where we left off. Bishop had gotten zonked off to an alternate universe where all the X-Men were black, and it looked as if they were all still hanging out at the mansion. Meanwhile, some younger characters Bishop was training ended up fighting an orca squad headed by the Federalist Twins down in the undercarriage of Krakoa. At the end of issue two... Uh, two of those younger characters and one of the Fenrises ended up squished together into one big old monster because I guess that's how Amass's powers work. Okay, this issue. Over in the alternate universe, which I'm going to call Earth-63 because on the cast of characters page, the other bishop is listed as, quote, the Lucas Bishop of Earth-63. I don't think we've been told that on panel that I've noticed, but I'm going with that. So we do get a bit more clarity on what's up in this universe. We learn from a data page, which is a speech by this world's Charles Xavier, that in Earth-63, the X gene only occurs in black folks. Not in all black folks, but only in black folks, which uh, I think is pretty similar to the premise of the comic Black by a writer named Kwanzaa Osajifo. Any Have you heard, heard of that book? I haven't, but I'm going to say this at the start. I actually found this issue a lot more interesting than the previous one, and probably the first one. And this did actually get my um, brain a thinking. So I, I've got some comments on this, why I think it's actually a lot more interesting than I you know, may have alluded in the past. And I certainly was pretty dismissive of you know, where this plot was going and kind of thought there's not really anything that interesting to come out of this. There's certainly concepts here. I don't know that it's a good comic, but th- there are no, some other and concepts. I'd say, it, I'd say this writer is a little heavy-handed. And this is obviously a subject that's not well suited for, you know, uh, over the top 
presentation. But anyways, we'll, we'll, when we get to the parts I want to talk about, I will. Here in Earth-63, the mutants do have Krakoa, and they do have a quiet council on Krakoa, but they also have a school for gifted black mutant youngsters at the mansion. So kind of both status quos on top of each other. In this world, Moira is, as far as we know, just a human ally of the mutants. No crazy universe resetting powers, at least as far as the public knows or we've been told. So that's the background. In the story itself, Bishop meets his Earth-63 counterpart, which is odd because our Bishop is not natively from the 616, but hails from a dystopian possible future called Earth-1191. So I don't know where this other Bishop, if he had any kind of a similar history. Uh, now, Bishop 63 does not have that big M carved into his face, so I guess he didn't have that same kind of experience. But we don't, we don't learn a whole lot about him. Our bishop wants to find Heather Tucker, a.k.a. Tempo. Her powers were involved with the accident that sent him here, so reasonably enough, he thinks that Tempo 63 might be able to help him get back to the 616. The Black X-Men insist that, sure, this universe's Dr. Heather Tucker is an ally of theirs, but, again, as far as they know, just a plain old human one. The two bishops go to see Heather, and our bishop gets all cranky face again, as kind of like he did a couple times in issue number one, and gets all up in Heather's face about how he knows who she really is, as if he has any idea how this universe works. But before he can get yelled at and apologize, Heather's clinic is invaded by the HLF, the Human Liberation Front. This is a turnabout from the 616 history, where Tempo was a founding member of the MLF, the Mutant Liberation Front who, among other things, blew up that world's Tucker Clinic. This human liberation front are four people in Iron Man-type suits whose ideology seems to be, well, I mean, you can probably guess from their name. They, they don't like uh, mutants so much. And of course, this being a world where all the mutants are black, there's extra layers of, hmm, kind of on top of that. Uh, but that's where we leave the bishops. Meanwhile, over in the 616, we learn more about Orcus's goal in having the Struckers tool around under Krakoa. Yes, they want to spread their modified Blightswill around to generally weaken, weaken Krakoa itself, but they also want to locate the pit and free the villains that are imprisoned there so that they can rise up and create disorder and destruction for the mutant nation. I guess they must have learned that from the Struckers. I don't know if that's public information, but well, that's Moira would know. Moira, Moira would know. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's, that's true. Uh, now, a footnote points out that unbeknownst to Orcus, those prisoners aren't there anymore, which does give us a little bit of information about where this whole timeline fits together. So this issue must be happening after Sabretooth and I'll have left the island over in those miniseries. In this story, not a whole lot occurs. The combined monster gets separated by a handy canister of knockout gas, and some of our gang of young mutants is taken prisoner by Orcus, while Wrongslide, Aura, and I think Armor are left free to go get help and or save the day themselves. So, like I was kind of hinting up above, this is one of those books where I think it's probably more fun to read about the book than to read the book itself. Uh, the art in Earth-63 by Sean Damien Hill and Victor Nava continues to be a highlight, while the art in the 616 sections does not. I'm just going to leave that there. Uh, I wouldn't mind reading a whole set of data pages about Earth-63. You know, give me a whole 22 pages laying out that history. That sounds cool. But the story there, and even more, the story back on Earth 616, doesn't do a whole lot to hold my interest. So as a comic book, I'm giving this a 5 out of 10. Ruben, tell me where I'm wrong. Yeah, so this is what I'm interested in. The dynamic between our bishop and the one from this Earth 63, is that what we're saying it is? 
Yep, that's what I'm calling it. And what interests me about this is, you know, Lucas Bishop that we know is from, like you said, a, another alternate timeline where, you know, world was pretty terrible. But at the same time, even though he was raised up in this sort of apocalypse world, he's, he's kind of viewed as cool, right? He's got this personality that people respect, at least. And it seems like the characters in this Earth 63, especially the female characters, seem to think he's kind of attractive because of his toughness, right? Or at least compared to the one that they know. And so my understanding of our Lucas is his whole agenda is like, let's change the timeline. So, you know, the world that created me never comes to fruition. And now he's interacting with a version of himself that appears to have never had that experience, right? So, as you noted, he doesn't have the the mutant tattoo over his face. And he's kind of just a, a dopey teacher, <laughs> not to offend you personally, given your own background. He's, he's, got, he's got a little bit of an Urkel thing going on, we could say. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, like, the Emma is, like, you know, kind of like, I've never seen, you know, Lucas look like, you know, the hot sexy you which know, is Mando funny Lucas. because the the cover of this issue is both bishops both looking badass fighting each other which does not yeah. come close to happening in the book but it does yeah. also undermine that theme you're pointing out yeah so there's this this element of just in general like you know the hardships that he went through made him the the you know admirable character that he is if that if you view him as admirable right and he's sort of getting to experience what he wants right I, I don't know that he's thinking like, oh, I don't want to be that. So I'm glad everything hellish that I went through happened. I, I don't think that at all. But it is an interesting kind of dynamic, right? To see yourself, um, what you kind of aspire for, and then maybe not really wanting it or not being happy with the outcome. I think he I'm, was still sure. I mean, the of course, I'm, we all wonder, you know, what would our life be like if we made different choices, had different circumstances, and, you know, in the X-Men universe, pretty often you get you get to actually see that, which is part of the fun. I do think the the sort of, you know, black versus white thing is a little overdone, particularly where they, you know, when they read his mind and, and see the kind of world that he lives in, and they're like, oh, God, how could you, you know, be in that environment? But, um, you know, it's, it's fine. I mean, people have different takes on, you know, race relations, and it's a tough subject, right? We have to deal with it. So it didn't bother me too much. And in general, um, I guess I am enjoying this a little bit more. Like for once, I thought like, hey, this is an issue that's sort of more about Bishop, has something new and different to say about Bishop. And so, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot more. I, not, I'm not going to say this is like a, you know, an eight or a nine or a 10, probably more like a six, six, five for me. But okay. I, I'm now kind of interested to see where this goes. Whereas previously, I was just like, okay, this is going nowhere pretty fast. Yeah, I think it's an interesting new world, and I'd like to learn more about it. Uh, we should be more interested in what's going on on 616. This is Orcus's really biggest plot in a long time. They have they have people on Krakoa working with them. They have a team <laughs> literally undermining the island. This should feel huge, but it really doesn't. There's even a Faelong really moment, right? Yeah. You see Faelong and, and Moira communicating, which, again... As you say, like should be a big deal. We, I mean, yeah, we haven't seen this much Moira in any other book. You know, Moira of you know evil robot, real six one six. You know what I mean? That Moira, not all the other Moiras. Uh, yeah, we this we haven't seen a lot of her, and it should be huge. But I, again, it it feels very perfunctory. Now, if this turns out to play into Fall of X, that could be interesting. But it doesn't really feel like it's going to. This feels like an off on the side book 
the talent off on the side story. I think the problem with the Moira stuff is you just don't believe anything is going to happen from here, right? At least I don't, right? I'm like, yeah, they've got this scheme, but like, to your point, this is not if this happening was happening in X Men Wars or X Men, exactly, exactly. Yeah, kind of so like sort of the, the saber tooth book, where again, it feels like somebody had an interesting story to tell, but you don't really believe it's going to have a huge impact on the the greater continuing story. Yeah. Okay, so that was uh, Bishop War Council number three. Moving on to X-Force number 39, written by, of course, Ben Percy, art by Robert Gill, colors by Guru FX, letters by Joe Caramagna, designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Now, the main purpose of this issue is to kick off what Marvel is calling a, quote, new era for X-Force. We check in with what's been happening in Wolverine, which, of course, is also Ben Percy book. We get some new team members, we get a new headquarters and set up some new-slash-old plot points for Percy to play with in future issues. Now, the most contentious scene to me, what I'm going to have a problem with, is right at the beginning. So we pick up at the end of a scene that we saw in Wolverine, same dialogue and everything, with Logan having dumped Beast's body in the middle of the Quiet Council, which now has to decide what to do about the living beast running around the planet killing dudes for the good of Kokoa. And what they decide is, yeah, it's fine. No, let him. He's only going to be killing our enemies, and, and now we have deniability. No one can blame us for what our ex-CIA chief is doing running around the planet, right? No one no one would blame us for that. Uh, we have deniability. My point is, it doesn't work like that. The world is just going to see an agent of Krakoa, one of the most famous mutants in the entire world, a former Avenger, former everything, the big blue bouncing furry beast, you know, just murdering UN submarines, killing people in England. I mean, make sure sometimes he's yeah. going to be quiet and secret about it, but other times not so much. He still has a big X on his belt. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, he's, yeah, he's not, he's not being us. that secret. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, Krakoa is going to get blamed for everything that he does. I, I do see what Ben Percy is trying to do here, kind of separating these things, saying that's a separate story. But the way he's setting it up is making it really hard for me to maintain any kind of willing suspension of disbelief. Charles Xavier and the rest of the council are just not that dumb. Correct. I don't want to see Ben Percy ever write anything with the Quiet Council in it ever again. It's the worst depiction of the council I've ever seen and just made me furious the whole time. Oh, dear. These are usually like some of the most clever, manipulative, you know, intelligent mutants that we get to experience. And they come across as just idiots. And not even clever idiots, just being like, eh. our solution is we just won't think about it. Now, over in like Immoral, they all have their own agendas. They all have their plans within plans within plans. We yes. hear they're just like, yeah, we're just not going to worry about it. Now, it is worth noting, I think, that there are two empty council seats in this scene. We see no Mr. Sinister and no Nightcrawler. Mm -hmm. is, are they just happen to be off in the men's room? Is that important? Is this connected to something that might happen in the end of Sins of Sinister? Uh, yeah. Probably, I guess. And why does, why does Mystique walk up to Storm and touch her face? That doesn't even make sense to me. I was like, <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, she. Yeah, that, that is weird. She doesn't have like tactile psychic mutant powers, right? Like that is I an odd, do not odd understand choice. This. It's almost like we know this is a lot of people sitting around talking. So let's make it a little more interesting. Put a little movement, little contact. But that that's an odd choice. She got up from across the room, walked over, and touched her face. It's just 
bizarre. I've, I've been in a, you know my share of meetings, and I I've never done that with person yes. also on the board with me. That uh, I would get you called out in front of HR. I'll do quick. that at work. Yeah, next time <laughs> I've got to present. You've got like a, a partner across the way. Just yes, let's go walk across. And, <laughs> yes. Okay, so after that silliness, the council does some more stuff. Uh, we need a new head of X Force because Beast is off, you know, doing other things, and they appoint Sage, which you know that's fine, that makes sense. Uh, I think we're supposed to consider her whole drinking problem a hundred percent cured. I don't think that's going to come up again. Uh, and Xavier calls her Tessa, which is odd. Do you have you know what the whole Tessa thing is? So one like whole Sage doesn't have a whole lot of characterizations. But one of the things we know about her is that no one knows her actual name, right? Now, Tessa is just a cover name she used some years ago working undercover. I think she was investigating the Hellfire Club. Anyway, it's definitely not her actual name. So I don't know why Charles calls her that. My, my best guess is that it's just supposed to remind us that Charles just doesn't always pay attention to all the individuals who work for him. He's, he's a big picture guy. He's not really a, well, touchy-feely you know, people person. So maybe that's what's supposed to let us know he's kind of out of touch. So uh, the council it just also- lets me know that Ben Percy's out of touch. That, that's I believe way to more read it, that sure. Ben Percy thinks that's her name than <laughs> that Charles is, you know, not knowing what's up. I, I guess that is the less generous way of reading it, sure. <clears throat> so the council also wants a bit more oversight in X-Force this time around. Hey, good idea. Uh, and council member Colossus volunteers to join the team, you know, be a real member of X-Force. And also keep the council all up to date with all the X-Force goings on, which would be fine, except for Colossus being under the influence of Chronicler, the Russian mutant who is under the thumb of Mikhail Rasputin, Colossus's evil brother. Now, we've been saying this for month after month now, but it looks like that Colossus plot point may finally be getting ready to play out. How many times have I said that? It's really happening now. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Jeff. Here we go. So I was thinking about this, and I don't know if you have an answer for me on this. How does this power work of the Chroniclers? Is it that he can only write about Russian mutants and control them? Or was there something else that specifically enabled him to control Colossus? Because I was I'm thinking, I'm not like, sure what that is. I'm not sure what that connection is. Right? Like, you know, Mikhail invades Krakoa and conquers everyone. Done. I don't think he can make the universe change. I think he can influence actions of individual people. So like he can't say, you know, I'm going to flip a coin a hundred times and it's going to come up heads every time. I think he can he can just make people do stuff. And exactly why Colossus specifically is someone he could influence, I, I don't know. I don't know if there is something planted on Colossus. I don't know if there's some contact made, if it has to do with Colossus being related to Rasputin. Yeah. We don't know. It's been kind of vague. If you could write about anyone, right? This is Death Note, right? You should very easily be able to Right. Take it's, over Krakoa. And yeah, it should have it's happened not a long definite. time ago. <laughs> now, uh, for folks who are interested, please do tune into my other podcast I do with Jim, Death Note uh, Notes, over on the uh, the other feed, where we go through the whole Death Note manga, chapter by chapter, which is a really good time. That was a little ad break. So, after, after this scene, the rest of the book plays out pretty quickly. Uh, Black Tom makes the team new headquarters, one that's more organic and Krakoa-ish than the, you know, Legion of Doom section that Beast had made. And frankly, it looks a whole lot like the X-Men's Central Park Park Treehouse. Okay, they've got a new HQ. And then Sage recruits Wolverine to the team. Wait, wait. I, I mean, Lady Wolverine. No, no, wait, hang on. I mean, 
young Lady Wolverine. Not not the youngest Lady Wolverine. Uh, you, you know what I mean. Laura, but not old Lady Laura. The Wolverines are just too complicated. But So she's on the team now, uh, with Percy writing her as a young, carefree, violent Wolverine, which could be fun to watch. She does insist that she's not really a team joiner, which I think she Except was on the X Men for just a while. Like, X Men, yes. Yeah, another thing that drove me nuts. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you were happily part of that team. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be writing her quite the same way as over in that book. Oh well. Uh, meanwhile, we're reminded that Sever Blackmore now has control of that war world-like space prison that Beast had been running. Kind of odd that no one from Krakoa has gone to try to clean up that problem yet. I guess they've been busy. Now, Sever very thoughtfully gives the new version of X-Force an excuse to have a fight scene. Now, new team, gotta have a new fight scene. So Sever loads a group of biotech monsters that Beast had created into what looks like the pod that brought baby Superman to Earth. And he crashes that pod down on Krakoa. There's a big old fight, X-Force wins, and we all celebrate. Now, is that the end, or do we need another scene? I think we need one more scene. Something to make long-term readers of this book extra excited to purchase the next issue. Just before the final page turn, there's a tiny pink glow and a pink sound effect that says, Shoom. We turn the page to find Kid Omega. Except he's not a kid anymore. Yeah, being I was bald. I that's his name anymore. And with a, yeah, he's got this pink beard long enough that he might trip over it. So is he is he old man Omega? Yes. Is he old man kid Omega? Do they cancel out and he's he, now he's just Omega? I, I don't know. I guess we'll get a name for him next time. But he pops out through a pink portal, conjures up a pink sword that he uses to chop up an armored tentacle that tried to follow him through the portal, and he asks X Force for help. So yeah, pretty good cliffhanger. Did you uh, did you like that last page? I did like the last page. The The pink beard was a little goofy, but I kind of like it. And I was happy to see Omega back more than I was expecting. So that part was good. The Laura, the drunken Laura brawler was just really irritating to me. And the idea of her like stabbing the what, blob and juggernaut in the leg. Yeah, they're they're playing this weird game, take a shot and take a shot. And I don't think Laura would be just that juvenile and violent for no good reason. I was even okay with that. It was just the idea of, of sticking adamantine claws through people's legs randomly. I'm like, these guys don't have healing factors. You've maimed them. What, they gotta, like, kill themselves and get resurrected so they can... Go off to the healing gardens. So they can walk again, right? I was imagining, like, now they're out of commission for <laughs> you know, several months because of the stupid violence, but anyways. Yeah, th- that was to set up Laura's character here, and it, it was kind of over the top. But yeah, I, I really also enjoyed the cliffhanger. As, as I'm sure we all recall, as far as we knew, Quentin Quire was dead, having been killed in battle with the hentai helmet almost a year ago back in X-Force 29, all his Cerebro backups having disappeared as well. So is this really Quentin Quire? Probably. What happened to him? How did he get here? I don't know. Will it be super creepy if he tries to score with Phoebe Cuckoo again? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Not even a question. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, how where he's been, how he's come back, all of what's, what's going on here. So that that could be fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it seems to me that Ben Percy is kind of gathering up loose plot threads and tidying them up, which I take as further evidence that there's going to be like a really major change in the Krakoan status quo, right? Because this yeah. is what you do. You want to, you know, get things cleaned up before you completely move on. So I don't know what's going to happen to the Hellfire Gala, and I've been dodging spoilers, so don't tell me if any out there does know. 
But every week, it feels like there's going to be more and more of a real change. And that's, that's kind of fun. Yeah. You know, and they, one thing else I'll say is, you know, Sage's whole spiel in this issue is like, oh, you know, we need to turn over a new leaf and take X Force a different direction and clean it up, right? She's still got the freaking sadistic murderer Omega Red on the team, right? And still seems to have no problem with his, you know, fantasy of the new base, including, you know, a room with hooks and a drain. Drains, and, yeah. 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 That was in our comic relief scene with, with him and Deadpool. But yeah, that yeah. is kind of weird. So, yeah. So I'm like, hey, you're not cleaning much up if you're still going to employ the same psychopaths, right? And I get that their relationship has been like her trying to relate to Omega Red and maybe get him back on a, you know, a different path. But I don't see any redemption with him at all or how they would be able to redeem him. He is a tough character to, to redeem. I mean, books have done it before. Like we had Dr. Octopus as a hero for a while. We've had Dr. Doom as a hero for a while, but Omega Red, kind of the life force vampire, it, that's going to be tough, but perhaps. And last thing I'll say, I did again laugh at Ben Percy's Deadpool. Um, the idea of him just being at the Quiet Council in the bushes coming out and then going back into the bushes. <laughs> yeah, that he'd come in and make, make a little uh, fourth wall breaking mention about they were listing all the bad things that Beast done in the past. And yeah. and Deadpool brings up Threnody, which is kind of a, a 1990s character that people would like to mostly forget. Uh, yeah. And he even talked about, yeah, the hashtag X spoilers is going to go crazy over that. So that, that yeah. was fun enough. That was good. Yes. Yeah, so that's the only thing I like of Ben Percy is his Deadpool. And yeah, the rest kind of, I guess I say the Omega Red stuff's been good. But the Quiet Council, which obviously I think I have fallen in love with and just really love that team. Um, I hated his depiction of that. So all in all for me, this is like a 6-5 issue, but um, a positive 6-5. Like I'm happy where he's taking the story. I just can't give him a seven because I'm pissed off about the Quiet Council stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm a little more positive than that. I'm going to you know, do my little art thing because I, I did make my New Year's resolution to talk about the art. Uh, I'm going to say Robert Gill's art in this issue is, is, is solid. I like it. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe it's the coloring. But I'm getting a little bit of an old school 1980s kind of feel from the art, which, you know, as an old person, I like that thing. Uh, so there's a, a lot of stuff that needs to happen in this issue, which means there's Pages and pages full of small panels, a lot of nine panel grids or lots of inset panels, which can be tough for an artist, but the action is always clear. And the characters are, are usually well presented. There's one or two panels of Laura that look kind of crazy to me. The size of her shoulders seems to kind of grow and shrink depending on, you know, which panel she's in, but that's kind of nitpicky. Uh, the action scene is kind of written kind of as an obligatory action scene, but Gil draws some cool monsters and some emotionally effective, scared mutant kids, and I think he makes that scene work. So, credit to the art there. So, overall, with my criticisms and the stuff I liked, and me looking forward to what's coming up next, I'm going to give this a 7.5 out of 10. So, I like this book significantly more than uh, Bishop and Ruben. It seems like you were at, like, both of them about the same for different reasons. Fair enough? Okay. Now, our final book of the show, and one that I think we're going to have to spend a little bit more time on, is Nightcrawlers, number three of three, Sins of Sinister, part 10, The Sacred Heart. That's the first of many, many religious references in this book. It is written by Josiah Spurrier, art by Lorenzo Tometa and Philip Sevi. Hey, that's that's not Alessandro Vitti. That's kind of interesting, because Alessandro Vitti, the whole gimmick was going to be one, one artist at all the year 10s, one artist on all the year 100s, 
and one artist in all the year 1000s, and it really only worked. They only actually made that happen for the year 10. I'm kind of curious what happened here. Anyway, colors are by Rain Berardo, letters by Clayton Cowles, and design by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Now, there's a cool cover here. I don't often talk about the covers, but it's got Mother Righteous with her reliquary. And in the background, I didn't even recognize who was in the background until after I read the issue. But in the background, we have, of course, our Devourer of Worlds himself. That's pretty neat. Now, this is our final Year 1000 issue. And these three issues have told a surprisingly compact, coherent story, right? It's all about the fight for control of Sinister's old lab and the Moira clone hidden within it. Now, other than a few cutaways, this issue takes place entirely on Mother Righteous's ship. Maybe it's a base. I don't know. She, she's in it, and it travels through space. Uh, that ship slash base now looks a lot like Ego the Living Planet, except that the face on it is a thick fungal coating of Dr. Nemesis. I guess he never did get that mushroom situation under control. Uh, so what, what do you think of Dr. Nemesis in this book? I don't think they really do what to do, do with him. He's, I guess he's supposed to be comic relief, but it's a little too gross for me to think it's funny. And so, yeah, I mean... He's had a consistent characterization, right? All he does is brag about how smart he is and how his fungal abilities give him great intelligence. But yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't like him that much. I thought he was kind of interesting. I'm not quite sure why he's so willing to work with Mother Righteous. Maybe some things happened off panel that gave you know, her control of him. Kind of unclear. But yeah, I, I was all right with that. I think it looked pretty cool. Now, Mother Righteous learns that Sinister, that is the Sinister, has arrived at the World Farm. Uh, Mother Righteous has known the location of the lab for years, and her reliquary has been complete for years. It holds items like Infinity Dust. I guess something happened in the Infinity Stones, presumably. It holds the guts of the Peregrine Child. Now, he's a monster from that Death of Doctor Strange miniseries a while back. And it holds a Phoenix Egg. Remember, it already held other magical items, like the sword made from the original Nightcrawler's soul, and the glowing baby born from the union of two Nightkin. The arrival of Sinister is the moment for Mother Righteous to put her plan into action, one that I guess she's had ready for who knows how many hundreds of years. Uh, this plan is called the Rapture. Another religious reference there, and it's it's funny how all these references are Christian, mostly Catholic. Uh, comic writers don't tend to like to poke at, say, Islam for some reason. I, I wonder why. Uh, anyway, this time, uh, it, it means it's time for all the remaining Nightkin to splat themselves against that Unisphere, and they do without, you know, having a second thought about it. At this point, Mother Righteous needs two things. She needs a diversion to hide her approach to that uh, system. Uh, remember, she's traveling through space in the giant head made of mushrooms, so she's not exactly sneaky. And two, she needs some way to crack open that Unisphere. Mother Righteous realizes that Destiny, who, remember, she could see the future, must have had some plan to reset the universe so she and Mystique could be together again. So for the first, the diversion, she has Dr. Nemesis scan the area around the world farm, and he finds Galactus approaching. Galactus has been taken over by all the spirits of vengeance who we were told fled Earth so many, many years ago. They all still hate the spirit of variance, I mean, who doesn't, and have followed Banshee here to this place at this time. Now, the whole diversion thing, I didn't entirely buy, but it's an excuse to do something that looks incredibly cool, so I'm not going to worry too much about it. What, what, what did you think of this, uh, this Ghost Rider type uh, Galactus? The character art was cool. I think I've got on record before that one of my favorite Marvel tropes is throw a bunch of Ghost Riders onto anything. 
and I love it. I love. I still really love the Ghost Rider Quinjet from um, Empire, and recently I enjoyed Superior's Ghost Rider Juggernaut. So <laughs> this is just another one of those. I was like, "Yep, make anything a Ghost Rider," and I'll thumbs up it. Probably. Yeah, I mean, we've had you know Cosmic Ghost Rider Punisher, who was Galactus's herald. So why not have Galactus himself be all Ghost Rider up? Pretty cool looking. And as far as the distraction goes, let me jump in on that comment. I, I actually, I, I did like it. This is something that um, elevated my score in general, because I, I do remember some of these plot points, right, about the Ghost Riders leaving and then, you know, the Juggernaut getting shot through Thanos' head. Yeah, the setup was done. So I, I was like, oh, and when at the time we read it, I, it was fine to read it as like, oh, this is just world building, right? Take off the big threats. And so... I was like, hey, this is actually laying the groundwork for something, you know, even better, right? Like, how do you break into this heavily defended fortress, get a distraction and get something that's going to, you know, break in? And I, I particularly liked that it wasn't um, Mother Righteous's plot, just that she figured out what Destiny was planning. It was a, a little convenient. Now, just, just to just say it uh, right out there is what's, what's going on here is that she needs a stone powerful enough to crack open the uncrackable sphere. And hey... I am reliably informed that no one can stop the Juggernaut. Now, like uh, Ruben has been talking about, we haven't seen him since uh, what seemed to be, to me at least, kind of a one-page throwaway gag way back in Sins of Sinister number one when he was used as a living bullet to kill Thanos. Uh, they didn't care about him after that because that's the whole Quiet Council thing. They use people and literally throw them away. So he's been careening around the galaxy ever since, just kind of like a pinball bouncing around, diverted by any kind of a large mass he happened to pass too close to. And he too, just like Galactus, winds up at this place at this time, and we get an undeniably cool splash page, right? This is the only splash page in the whole book, and it is awesome. It is Galactus having Juggernaut shoot through his head and then shoot down an impact on the sphere kind of blowing up the rest of the world farm. Now, the whole scale of the world farm, again, I'm not too sure about, but it, they make it work. It looks cool. And I like the captions of this page, too. Up top, uh, right where he enters Galactus's head, we see, enter the juggernaut. And right when he hits the sphere, we see, exit the juggernaut. Kind of funny little joke. Uh, of course, uh, juggernaut's first appearance was in the original X-Men number 12 by Stan and Jack. And a tale called, of course, Enter the Juggernaut. So why not make that joke? So the sphere here is battered, but not quite cracked open. We, we need to hit our theme a little harder because Cy Spurrier never saw a theme that he didn't want to hit a little harder. Uh, it has Mother Righteous callously order the one remaining original Nightkin, Anti-Fortune, who's the Nightcrawler Domino Chimera, not Camaro, that's a sports car, Chimera, <laughs> to splat against the sphere. Now, I guess Auntie Fortune had become a ghost? Is that what she is? Is she a ghost? Like a zombie kind of thing. Zombie? Yeah. And now she's a dead ghost slash zombie? Yes. Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to think about it too hard. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so the sacrifice of one more ghost zombie nightkin is enough to open up the sphere and Mother Righteous and Banshee enter. But Yeah, and I want to pause here. Okay, so go ahead. At this point, as I'm reading the story, I'm like, why are these people just throwing themselves at the sphere? Like, I understand religious fanaticism, but it, particularly with this one, they make it kind of clear that she doesn't really want to do it, but she's going to do it anyways, right? The, the facial expressions tell me that, at least. So, 
you know, spoiler alert, at the end, we find out a little bit more about what her power is and that, you know, if you start thanking her, she gets more control over your your mind and actions and bodies. And so once I learned that detail, I actually was like, okay, this finally works, right? It's not just that these people are fanatics, it's that once they pledge themselves to her cause, she gets more power over them and really can't just, you know, throw their bodies at whatever yeah, she wants to do. Let's let's talk about that. So the quote is, and other stuff happens first, but let's talk about what she says. A mother righteous says, your story's mine to unwrite. A thousand times you thanked me. That's my power. With every grateful word you gave me dominion, dominion, she says, over your soul and your flesh. Which, I guess that's her power, but it's, thematically, it's very strange to me. It, it almost seems like Cy Spurrier staking out like a bold stance against gratitude, right? He's saying, thanking is bad, is what I'm getting here, which is, is strange. Is he saying that thanking people like, in general gives them power over us? No, I don't think so. I, I guess I'm reading I, too I much into it. I, do I see where you're reading into that, but I just looked at it as she's the magic version of the, you know, Nathan Essex's and her magic works when you thank her. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'd appreciate it more if I kind of knew the source of that particular power because she's, as far yeah. as we know, just a clone of Thingle Essex who's into magic. Why this particular power? Where, where that come from? And again, usually if there's a power, Especially it's being hit with this religious theme so, so hard. It feels like there should be an actual lesson that's trying to get across here. And all I get is, yeah, gratitude is, is, is not good. Yeah. Okay. She got the dark hold. <laughs> she read a page that gave her that power. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. So where are we? Oh, right. Yes. Mother Righteous and Banshee entering uh, the lab, right? Entering the, the Unisphere that's cracked over. This is a super big deal. And we see, and again, another thing I didn't notice the first time through is they're being followed. We see just a person with black gloves kind of behind them. Uh, and now it's time to de deploy the reliquary perilous, which is not what Mother Righteous led everyone to believe it was. I mean, she is a sinister after all. The reliquary truly is a means to send a message back through time, even from a universe that will no longer exist. Now, li like you say, she's the magic version of, of Nathaniel Essex. And this, to me, is her religion magic-based equivalent of Sinister's computer system that uploads data to the brain of the Marvel yes. clone to send information yep, that's back. that's exactly what it is. Yep. Now, it's not just like Dominion information or science information. What she will get is all the secrets of, that anyone has ever shared with her, all their regrets. Uh, she'll know them all, and I, I'm not exactly sure why that will make her the winner next time around. But again, for thematically for her, it makes sense that that, that is what she'd want. Next playthrough, she'll have the upper hand, she thinks, over the Essexes. I think she'll be more able to quickly manipulate, assimilate, take control of people around the other Essexes. And that would then allow her to more quickly. I, I guess, I mean, it's going take to charge. be a very different world. So like the early, early secrets will be useful to her. But anything yeah. that's happened in like the last... 800 years is going to play out so differently that it's hard to see again again it's 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 kind of moot because of what happens next but i'm not entirely sure what her plan is and i mean that's a good question do you think this was her plan all along that she was never trying for dominionhood or do you think at some point she said hey this playthrough it's not going to happen i might as well gather up some information and send it back does she want to be dominion or does she just want to win the essex fight 
I think she wants Dominion, but I think the world that she would be elevating at this point is not what she wanted. And probably once the Diamond Faction took charge, she realized, you know, that's not what I want to take forward. I think she could have taken over this world, right? And maybe elevated it. But in, in my mind, something here happened that she didn't like. I'm not sure how if that's how Dominion works. I mean, like like I know how Dominion works, but I was <laughs> thinking that once you get to Dominion, it doesn't really matter what this galaxy or universe is like. You know, you're you're a super trans universal godlike power. The, the the path you got there doesn't matter. But I it's hard to say. I mean it's it's intentionally you know, above my understanding. So now we get a little more information on that reliquary. Uh, it contains all its magical stuff, including something else I missed my first read through. It, it contains Rasputin Four. Uh, I was I was all kind of annoyed after reading through and hey, we didn't see Rasputin Four. I wanted to see Rasputin Four, but right there on page sixteen, we see that uh, in this reliquary we've got the sword that came. It was the Soul Sword from Nightcrawler. We see a Phoenix Egg, and we see. Uh, Mother Righteous calls it a villain's notion of perfection, which, I mean, that is what uh, Sinister's view of Rasputin Four was. So we saw that uh, Mother Righteous was talking to Rasputin Four floating out there in space, and I thought she was going to be more of a character going forward to finish us up, but I guess I guess she's all done. That, that's interesting, but also also kind of disappointing because I want to see more. What do you, what well, do you think is, of this Rasputin Four outcome? This is how she's going to get into the current timeline. Oh, wow. I, I think that this thing is going to actually get sent back. Okay. And I think that she'll she'll pop pop off in that current timeline. That would be fascinating. I mean, she is, I don't know if she, I'd describe her as a fan favorite, but there's certainly a group of people out there really into Rasputin 4. I don't know how big it is, but there, that would be a, a cool thing to happen going forward. That's that's an interesting idea. I like it. I like it. I'm going to I'm gonna uh, sign on to that. Let's see what else is going on here. Well... Uh, the other thing that this sacred heart, sacred heart, more religious stuff, needs is that it needs to be guided back in time by a mind. And the only mind that can do that is Wagnerine and Summer Nights glowing baby girl, who we learned about two issues ago. And I, again, I'm, I'm glad to see this character come back. Uh, and at this moment, Wagnerine herself bamps onto the page. And this makes me say, hey, wait, how did she get here? How did she know any of this was going on? And my answer is, I don't have an answer. I, it's either a plot hole, or we haven't been told yet, or I missed something. So what yeah. what do you think about this? Yeah, I'm a little concerned about this piece, just because we did see she escaped, right? And she plotted vengeance, and that's okay, mm -hmm. but... And that was 900 years ago. I mean, she is... A Wolverine, and we know that Wolverines can live an awful long time, so I, I guess yes. we're okay with that. But I guess she'd have to be stocking out the the Doctor Nemesis ship, and then mm -hmm. also have the ability to follow it here. So it's a it's a little weird. I would think that you know high intelligence Nemesis would know if he was being tracked by this character. Yeah, and this is not the character with the black gloves that we saw a couple pages ago. So that's that's somebody entirely different. So I'm I would really like to know. Maybe we'll find out next issue. It seems like a lot's going to have to happen next issue, so I doubt it. But I want to know how Wagnerine knew how to be here. I do have my wild speculation, which I think is going to be right. I think the baby Please. is actually the superior Nightcrawler, or whatever we're calling it, the huh. the Spider Nightcrawler. So yeah, that's I don't think I can sign on to that one. That's a little out there. That's fine. I think I think this is going to go back in time. That'll be a huge prediction for you because from right now, 
That seems pretty crazy to me. So my theory is that this this baby has maybe some of Spider-Man's abilities blended with Nightcrawler's abilities, and that's why it's going to take on the persona of huh. a Spider-Man Nightcrawler. I, I guess we will see. That is a bold prediction from Ruby. Yes. Uh, let's see. Also, another thing about Wagnerine is I wish her appearance hadn't been spoiled for me by having her listed on the cast of characters on that recap and credits page. Like, I had forgotten she existed. I read that recap and go, oh, I guess Wagnerine's coming back, which means that when she surprisingly comes back, it's not really a surprise. I think that's like an editor should have said, yeah, let's, let's not list her. They don't always list all the characters on that page, and they really could have left her out. Yeah, I don't read those pages ever, so that's my pro tip. Okay. Uh, Just yeah, read I, your I, comics and remember what happened. You don't need the... You don't need the <laughs> see, I sometimes have a hard time with that last part, so I like little recaps. But anyway, Wagnerine is here, and there's a fight. Wagnerine and a disillusioned and now depowered Banshee. Uh, Mother Righteous used his, his the, you know, uh, vengeance variance power to power up that glowy baby, uh, and they're fighting against Mother Righteous. Mother Righteous is about to win, but she forgot about Dre. I mean, she forgot about the claw in Wagnerine's tail, which stabs her through her chest, killing her. This is that same tail claw that killed another Essex clone, Dr. Stasis, back in Nightcrawler's number one. So, as a callback, I thought it was, like, a little bit too cute for me, but I'm I'm okay with it. Uh, what, what did you think of that twist? Yeah, I don't know that she forgot about it so much as, you know, she turns to deal with Banshee, and then, you know, Wagnerine is laying on the ground and just kind of spikes her from behind. So I, I was fine with it. I agree if it was like, you know, they're facing off against each other, and then she's like, oh, crap, I forgot about your bill. <laughs> I mean, Wagnerine does specifically say, after the stabbing, nobody ever remembers the tale, which is yeah. you know, just what she said, basically, back last time. That's just some, some puffery, in my mind. In the next panel, uh, we see her stab Mother Righteous at least four more times, snick, 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 snick in the back. So I guess to sure that's to tell dead. us, yeah, she is, she is for <laughs> reals dead. She is, she is so dead. I'm very okay with that because I always can't stand these uh, types of things where people don't really take out their adversary and then they somehow <laughs> come back. Yeah, she's hated her for 900 years. She's not taking any chances. But it surprises me to see Mother Righteous dead before the final issue. I mean, we thought, we had specifically projected that, oh, Dominion's going to be this fight between, you know, Mother Righteous and Mr. Sinister, and now there's no more Mother Righteous, which is very interesting. The path to the Moira clones is clear, right? There's basically Ragnarine and original Nathan Essex, and that's it. Yeah, and, and Wagnerine takes her glowy baby and bamps the heck out of there. We don't know where she goes. I guess, you know, they're going to do whatever, you know, mama and baby are going to do. Baby's still baby after nine hundred years, so kind of a kind of a weird baby. I don't know if it's was not aging yeah, in the reliquary. Yeah. Uh, who knows? I don't think we're ever going to find out. Maybe we will. But uh, yeah, this really changes what I thought the story was, and we get some chatter here between her and Banshee all about like what does it mean to reset the universe? Very similar to what we heard Storm say, and Banshee's answer here is all story based, kind of very you know meta story meta fictional the idea that is that they now get to quote be in charge of their own story which i don't know if that what does that have to do with the universe resetting are they still in charge of the story if they get reset and never existed or does it matter anyway because just like over in dc 
everything matters? I don't know. So, what do you have anything to add about that idea? Um, I think this is more along the lines of, hey, you're a clone and you were created to serve Mother Righteous. And then Banshee's saying, well, she was created to serve the Quiet Council. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, right. So she, she's created to serve, basically. And now she's like, you know, all this death and destruction. You know, what was the point of it? And he's like, it doesn't matter. Like, now you get to be in charge of your own future, at least for time being, which is all that matters that, you know, freedom and self-direction is important. That's a, a good theme, but as at least in this story, it felt kind of underbaked. Like it was kind of, well, we need to have something inspiring at the end, so we'll say this. It didn't really, I didn't feel like it was set up enough. I, fair, totally fair to critique that. But that seemed to be like a yay freedom. <laughs> two-panel exchange or three-panel exchange. A little, uh, little Braveheart there for you. Uh, so, uh, they're gone. We're here. We're the only person alive, well, besides the Moira clone floating in the, uh, the, the tank there, is a really messed up Banshee. I mean, he's been injured in this fight. He's super, super old. He's stripped of his spirit of variance. And now that mysterious black-gloved figure walks in, uh, we're going to have another character show up and kick our story in yet another direction, and it's Moira. This is the original Moira, now you know, evil robot Moira, who we last saw in Immoral Number 3, when she had been hanging out with that Doombot, and Sinister picked up her and the Doombot back on Earth. I think they had a clue to where to go next from Destiny. Uh, and then she was last seen at the end of the issue, when they all crash-landed at the World Farm. Now. While the other two in that crew, uh, that being Sinister and the Doombot, played major parts in Storm and the Brotherhood number three, I went back and checked, and Moira does not appear in that issue at all. We don't see what happens to her after the final panel from Immortal number three. So it makes sense that she was in the area, right? She was still in the same you know, system, the same world as Sinister's lab. So I guess it makes sense that she'd be on the scene here. Now, Bansy, as we said, is also super badly wounded. Moira, her, you know, his ex-girlfriend, picks up the magical reliquary that Mother Righteous had dropped, and now she shoots Banshee right between the eyes with a handgun. Uh, boy, again, yeah. So she's she's killed Banshee a couple times now. I mean, to him, it's a thousand years apart, but to us, it's pretty recent. Remember back in uh, Inferno, it was right where Moira, back before she became evil robot Moira and was just evil human, no longer a mutant Moira. She killed Banshee and wore him as a skin suit to get through a Krakoan gate, which shouldn't work, but it did. Okay. But yeah, they've, they've had a weird relationship for a while now. And that's where it ends. Uh, it looks like the final issue out next week will be a showdown between, I guess, Mr. Sinister and evil robot Moira, which I don't think anybody predicted. At least I certainly didn't. Now, what I don't know is what is Moira's goal? What what is her motivation now? What does she want to do? Any any ideas? Well, she's wanted to live forever, right? That right? seems to be her, her main thing is survival. So I'm confused, but I'm speculating that this might be a precursor to Fall of X. Like she may have information somehow here that she can send back to the workplace crew. Now, I, I wonder if like way, way back in Hoxpox, there was uh, Destiny predicting that if she makes the right choice at the end, she gets an extra bonus life. Yeah. Could this something to do with the future and the clones be ready to pay off on that? I'm at like maybe 15, 20% probability on that, but I, I think it's worth thinking about. Yeah. 
But yeah, I, don't, I really don't know what she wants, which could be interesting, right? I mean, we yeah. have Kieran Gillen to write this last issue, which is going to be like a double-length issue, and a, has a lot of different ways he could go. And I'm a little concerned because I don't know what Moira's going to want to do, but that also opens up a possibility for something really great. I mean, I could see her wanting Dominion as well, right? She's not a, an Essex, but this, yeah, this sure. Moira has wanted to live forever. That's been her kind of driving force since she became a cyborg. That's a really good thought. I mean, if so she doesn't she get the can, extra life, she gets the eternal dominion life. That's yeah. that'll be a win. Why yeah. Not? So she may basically be like, "No, you're not killing these more clones, <laughs> right?" She might be the mm-hmm. final boss, as you say. Okay, so themes. We've we've gone through most of these themes already. The whole morality reset in the universe. Uh, we know what's going to happen, but we have to see them kind of argue it out because. It, you know, somebody's got to make the opposite argument, which again puts us in the kind of interesting position of rooting for the bad guys because we want this universe to go away too, which is, is kind of interesting. I'm not sure anybody's position here on keep the universe or ditch the universe is entirely philosophically coherent, but fun to think about. Uh, the theme of Mother Righteous as religious leader. Not the most subtle depiction I've ever read of a leader using religious rhetoric for nefarious purposes. But hey, not the least subtle either. I remember like back in like the 90s, early 2000s, every villain on every science fiction fantasy TV show was some kind of a preacher with a, you know, a, a southern accent. So, you know, I've, I've seen worse is all I'm saying. Uh, we, we do see that Mother Righteous has used and betrayed absolutely everyone who has ever helped her, everyone who's ever believed in her. And it didn't really work out for her at the end. So she does get her comeuppance. Uh, I'm, I don't know what Cy Spurrier's religious beliefs are, but I don't expect to see him in the pew next to me on Sunday at uh, Catholic Church. That's all I'm going to say. And I'd be surprised. You know, he's welcome. Come on in. Our Lady of Chenstohover, you know, welcomes everybody. But I, I don't think he's going to be there. Uh, uh, art. Uh, why do you think Alessandro Vitti didn't do the art for this issue? Just, just a time crunch? That's what I assume whenever an artist doesn't work on something. It's kind of disappointing because that was a, a cool gimmick that they, they hit pretty hard when they were talking about this whole Sins of Sinister thing. Oh, one artist for this era, one artist for the second era, one artist for the third era, which I, I really like that idea. But on the other hand, I really like the art in this issue. I was going to say, yeah, I actually prefer it. <laughs> so I'm kind of torn. This is uh, Lorenzo Tometa and Philip Sevi. And I did, you know, look them up on Twitter. And they did different pages. I, one of them did most of the pages. One did just a few pages, which I think reinforces the idea that, oh, they were just in a rush and had to get this out. Now, the pages do not look rushed, right? Like some of the pages over in, you know, the Bishop book, those look rushed. But these pages look really nice. And I don't see a difference between styles page to page either. So however they, they worked it, it looks coherent. It looks fantastic. Uh, if they had to be brought in from the bullpen to, you know, save the day, they 100% did. I would be happy to see either of these two artists on another X book going forward. That'd be more than fine by me. So excellent there. Mm. Uh, so let's see. Anything else we need to talk about? I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling because I had scrolled up to get those artist names right. Uh, no, I just say this about, about it and then you can give your review. So, you know, I was a little down on the Storm of the Brotherhood Indians issue and, you know, I wasn't like totally down on this event, but it, it felt like it was a big stumble in my mind. And this one really picked it back up for me. I'm really looking forward to the Dominion issue again. There were some good 
you know, developments. They tied up a few stuff. The art looks badass, like you said. There were thought-provoking elements. There was stuff that, you know, I had gone out on a limb and come up with crazy, stupid speculations about. <laughs> but that's what I want in a comic, right? Like, something that engages me and makes me think and makes me predict the future and makes me excited about the next issue. Absolutely. And- this is not one of those issues that you, you read through in, in five minutes and put aside and never think about again. It is, it is you know, even where we want to argue with it, it's, it, it's a thought-provoking book, which, you know, I think you and I both like. Yeah, not perfect, right? There's some stuff like, you know, where did the, the Wagnerine come from, right? The things that just are irritating. Like, what? I still don't feel like they did a perfect job of explaining what Mother Righteous's power set is. Mm-hmm. I don't even really understand, like, how you send stuff. The thing is kind of half-baked. Yeah, like, how do you get stuff from this timeline back to the future? You know, just kind of, oh, it's magic. And then, at the same time, it felt like, they, they could have just been like, it's magic, right? But it felt like there was a kind of convoluted explanation. That They're trying to do, again, a, to make a thematic it works. thing where all this power and all this faith and belief and trust and thank yous it was supposed to i think i think it was supposed to fit together better than it really fit to me i mean it was okay but it didn't make that whole ah i get it that i'm pretty sure spurrier was going for and also just just the juggernaut and uh the devourer of worlds all showing up at exactly the right time and place i think i could have used a little more explanation of that and exactly how destiny made it all how she got them to come together but again it looked super cool the call, just having a callback to Juggernaut was, I almost want to say brilliant. It's like, right, it's almost brilliant. It's, it's so cool. Very unexpected with such a great looking page. So yeah, among the year 1000 books, for me, this was clearly better than Storm of the Brotherhood, which had just too many. Here's a cool thing. Here's a cool thing. It doesn't matter. This had cool stuff, but it, it felt like it mattered more. And I think this was almost as good in a different way as Immoral Number Three. But yeah, just those kind of plot and thematic things that, didn't entirely fit together great. So I'm going to give this a, a, a good solid 8.3 out of 10. Yeah, wow. I was just at an 8, but regardless, I just felt like this was good. And I'm back on board. I'm excited for this last issue. And overall, I feel like this is maybe one of the funner issues or one of the funner events that we've had. I'm questioning, do I like this better than Judgment Day? But, you know, they're very different in kind of yeah, the it's scale. Interesting. and. There, some ways, there's really similar in that we're setting up a timeline that we know is going to go away, which having two events in a row do that same kind of thing, I wasn't too crazy about. But yeah, just the feel and thematically and the writers involved and just the time and space scope are, are really different. And I like it significantly better than, than that. I feel, I feel like the ending is better. I, I think well, some I of so. the- We're not there yet. Let's not count our chickens. Sure, but it's a little clearer, like what has to happen, and it feels a lot less like a wishing machine, even though it is just a reset, right? It it works a little better, right? Like there's a very clear objective: get to the Moira kill it, reset the timeline. That seems a lot le- like less obnoxious than you know, assemble <laughs> MacGuffin and use it to win the day. Or, Agreed. You know, and again, we both like Kieran Gillen, and we like we had we found things to like in that other event. I think yeah. that other event grew too big for the story he was trying to tell. I kind of got bloated where this, yes. this feels a lot tighter. It, it feels like you had these three guys sitting around coming up with a tight story to tell and, yeah. and, and telling it. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. Everybody was more on board with how things worked and it, mm-hmm. it showed, right? Fewer, I felt fewer like the, cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. With Judgment Day, a lot of the problems were like, we still never figured out like what the criteria was for the judgments. And it seemed like everybody had different ideas and. 
that that should have been just the next arc in uh, Eternals, but Marvel wanted to make it bigger. Okay, so that was our books this week. Next week, well, we do have Emma Frost on the cover of Invincible Iron Man number five, which is a book that's also been featuring X-Men villain Phalong, who we also saw today in uh, in the Bishop book. So we'll spend a minute or two talking about what happens next time in, in Iron Man, because, you know, that's we're told that's the fall of X book. It was right there in the promo. But primarily, we will be talking about, of course, Sins of Sinister Dominion number one, which is the whole wrap of this issue written by Kieran Gillen. And whatever is going to happen to this story, we say we, we think it's going to end well, that this is where it's going to end, well or not. Now, here's a quote I found from Kieran Gillen's most recent newsletter that he sends out to folks. He says, next week, Dominion with Paco and Lucas. That's Paco Medina, Lucas Warnock, the artists, where I start collecting signed apologies from anyone who said that the crossover wouldn't impact Krakoa. Well, that's <laughs> intriguing, isn't it? Which is, yeah. a, we, we've been arguing about this ever since it started. How much is this going to matter? Is this going to change anything? And I mean, uh, Kieran Gillen is, you know, whipping something out, putting it on the table and saying, yeah, it's going to matter. So if it doesn't, uh, he's got a lot of explaining. To so that was pretty cool. That was exciting. I, I'm glad he's calling a shot, right? And if this event does have so, I mean, it's probably just going to be, hey, Rasputin Force here, but and, which is, yeah, I guess it matters, but I don't know how much it'll matter, but we'll see. I mean, it, I'm proud that they're trying to say like your crazy Elseworlds story means something. Yeah. And, and Gillen has also said in his newsletter that his time in the Xbox is kind of not immediately coming to a close, but that he's getting ready to wrap it up. So he's not going to be the architect of anything Fall of X and future, at least not unless he comes back for a, like a third bite at the apple. So he, he wants to make his mark now, which should be cool. Okay, there we have it. Next week, we will find out together how Sins of Sinister ends. So Ruben, what is it that we say at the end of every episode? Yeah, go read more X-Men comics. <laughs>